بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Alrighty, so we're continuing in our origins story and yesterday we we focused on the announcement and then we focused on the story of the prostration and so now finishing the prostration and getting into the story of the tree. So let me just write some more things on the whiteboard just to bring us back up to speed. Once again, please let me know you can see the whiteboard. Somebody nod somewhere. Yes. Okay. Even if you can't see it, just nod anyway. Makes you feel good. Okay. So pull up that box and then pull this. And so, so once again, <clears throat> we have. Um, in terms of origins, 30 through 39, 30A is the announcement. And that is 30 to 33. B is the prostration. That's the four, and then C is the tree. And one point that I've mentioned a few times in passing is that even though A is listed first, B is listed second, C is listed third, don't assume that first the announcement happened and then the prostration happened, uh, the event of the prostration happened, then the, then the event of the tree happened. Could be that they all happened at the same time. Or it could be that this is in, in a different order. Um, and so back to our point yesterday, the primary purpose of history in the Quran, just like everything else, is lessons. Lessons to guide us in how reality operates. And so the big takeaway point here is that humans have this responsibility of being the Khalifa. There are some other uh, uh, minority opinions that the Khalifa is just Adam, peace be upon him. Another is that the Khalifa is the Prophet, peace be upon him. Majority opinion seems to be that the Khalifa is referring to the entirety of humanity. And then <clears throat> Allah is all. Right? There's obviously more. The angels are speaking about them. And here <clears throat> we have Obedience versus rebellion or rejection. And so in terms of Iblis's refusal, Azazil's refusal, the statement he gave is that he is better than him, in which we interpret as arrogance. And what I'm suggesting is that that was not the real reason. The real reason was that he was angry and he was jealous. And so it's as though he's saying, you know, to Allah, whether you command me to do it or not, I'm not going to prostrate to him. Because Iblis feels that he got passed up for the opportunity, you know, or passed up for the role. It's as though... You know, you're working really, really hard for, uh, you know, for a position at work and then you get passed up and someone else gets it. And, and so 
it causes this this uh, jealousy in him. And then we said, what is arrogance? Arrogance is a response to my own insecurity. Arrogance is a shield I put on when I don't want to face something. So then I'll start saying that, okay, this is dumb. Why should I do this? And, and so arrogance is sort of a shield in the way taqwa is a real shield. So if you were to imagine taqwa, which we translated as shielding yourself, imagine that's a shield made out of iron and arrogance is a shield made out of, out of a balloon, right? It's really, really uh, not strong at all, which then means that even if you are hiding behind arrogance, chances are that's not gonna be enough for you to feel safe. And so you might go forth further and start making accusations. Okay, you're a liar. And then some people will even reach the point where they might engage in violence. And that literally sums up the Quraysh for the 13 years um, of the prophet's message, right? First, they, they disregard him, they laugh at him, and then they start character assassinating him. And then when that's not enough, they start torturing his followers. And then when that's not enough, they start boycotting even people who are not Muslim, who are related to the followers. And when that's not enough, they decide that, right, we're going to have to remove him. They're going to have to kill him. That is what launches the Hijra. Okay. And then now the tree. So what are all the parts of the tree? Allah is speaking to Adam and Eve, Adam and Hawa. I mean, although she's not named, Adam, you and your wife. Go anywhere. Do whatever you want. But not this tree. But stay, don't come near this tree. There isn't anything in our sources where Allah is telling them why. Except that at most, if you go here, you're going to become a wrongdoer, you're going to become an oppressor. And then Shaitan comes along and makes them forget. And Musab will get to your question in just a moment, inshallah. Makes them forget. What does Shaitan tell them? He tells them, this is the tree that will make you immortal like angels. And they go to the tree. And then what happens, and this is in other parts of the Quran, they feel something that they have not felt before, which we would call in our language remorse or regret. And they also get exposed to their own nakedness. So they feel remorse, regret, and they feel exposed. And think of that feeling of being exposed. That's giving us a hint of modesty. And it's in the same universe as shame. It's in the same universe as shyness. That modesty is essentially about what? It's about privacy. That there are things you're not sharing with, with, uh, with others. 
And then what happens? <clears throat> Allah teaches dua. And they make the dua. Or they say the dua. So it's a dua for seeking forgiveness. And they're forgiven. And then they're sent to earth. With a caution. And the caution is that anyone who follow, when my guidance comes, if you follow it, you need have no fear, nor shall you grieve. But if you reject it, you're doomed. So these are the parts of the story. So <clears throat> Allah Ta'ala says, Allah Most High says to Adam and Eve, peace be upon them, go wherever you want, do whatever you want. And so, so now to Musab's question, <clears throat> some scholars say the Garden of Eden was actually on earth, is that true? So in terms of like just the uh, academic interpretations of all these little points, there is a question, okay, where is this? So you find three theories. One theory is that this is paradise. Yeah. But the criticism of that theory is that this can't be normal paradise. Why? There's a couple arguments we can give from what I wrote on the screen for why this can't be normal. The paradise that you and I are aspiring for. Why well, not? Uh, Shaitan is there in some form. Yes. And they have limits. Right. So, yeah. So in real paradise, there's no restrictions. And here you have Shaitan doing his, his tricks. And on top of that, even before he does his tricks, they, they're told they're free to do whatever they want, but here they can't go to the street. There's, and the way we're taught about paradise, there's no restrictions. The only thing that might be a restriction in paradise is that you can't go to a higher level without some special access, like a VIP pass or something. Uh, but otherwise, your paradise, you have no restrictions. So, so theory two is that it's some special part of paradise. Another theory is that it's a place where uh, heaven and earth sort of meet, but it's still physically higher. And then for some reason, people keep claiming that's from Jordan. I think it's Jordanians that keep claiming that it's from Jordan. And, and so, <clears throat> so, yeah, the Garden of Eden could be someplace on earth or some other place alone was best. The interesting question is more, if we take all these different opinions, how does that change the story? And so Masab, think about that. Uh, if we say it's in real paradise, how does that affect the story? If it's a special place of paradise, how does it affect the story? If it's part of earth, how does that affect the story? You don't have to answer now, you can reflect on it. Okay. So they're free, go anywhere you want, don't go to this tree. Shaitan says, okay, this, is, this will make you immortal. Now back to the question yesterday. If we imagine, we usually imagine the characters in these stories to be adults, but if we imagine them to be kids, it's like the story makes much more sense. You know, they're told, don't go here, go play wherever you want. Of course, you're not gonna have a wife, but it's paradise. And then Shaitan makes them forget. Nevertheless, Adam, peace be upon him, does feel regret for this whole period. So here's the question. <clears throat> if they were forgiven, 
right? They make this dua, which you can find in the Quran, Rabbana Zalamna Anfusana. You know, our Lord, we have wronged ourselves. And then we seek your forgiveness. And if you don't forgive us, we'll be among the wrongdoers. Okay. So if they're forgiven, why were they sent to earth? There's, there's another point um, uh, of the relation uh, w- when, they, when they felt remorse and what is the relation with uh, their exposure of their parts? Yeah. Like uh, how we can relate that. Okay. Well, let's come back to that in a moment. But Earth, why uh, are they being sent to Earth? Yes, they had this responsibility all the way at the beginning at the time of the announcement to be the Khalifa. So they're being sent to earth to start their job. Okay, if that's the case, then what wisdom can we gain by the fact of this whole exercise with the tree? You know, why don't I just send them to earth to start their job in the first place? What was gained by this experience with the tree? It's a choice. So they have a choice. Keep going. Uh, free will. Can you make it even easier? Um, what are they being shown? Their forgetfulness. So they're being shown their forgetfulness. They're being shown, you know, what the devil is going to try to do. And they're also being shown that, all right, you're going to be making mistakes, whatever the cause is. Here's how to straighten yourself out. So it's sort of like they went through the most basic training they need for their work in in the world. That there are times where you're going to do wrong. And when you do wrong, turn back to Allah and seek forgiveness. Make sense? So they're giving this training. And then the question received, uh, are they familiar with the trees that Earth has? Maybe. Uh, and so, yeah, I'd also be curious, you know, what that tree actually looked like. So, so now if we compare them with Iblis, they made one request and it, they were both forgiven, right? Forgive us. If you don't forgive us, we're doomed. Iblis made two requests. Don't send me to hell now. Earth, why is Iblis being sent to hell? I mean, is it because of the refusal of the prostration or why? The arrogance of not asking for forgiveness. So not even not asking for forgiveness, but the fact that he is being arrogant with God. So we shouldn't be arrogant with anybody. But him at his status of, of, of faith or apparent status of faith, being arrogant with God is literally the worst thing you can do. Now, what is our equivalent of that? It's all the times we don't obey Allah. I mean, without I mean, with uh, without uh, justification. So we can say that uh, Iblis might be the only being, while in front of God, has disobeyed right in front of God. Yeah. So imagine that type of arrogance. 
Because one of the questions I raised yesterday was Iblisa Kafir. And I mean, he's basically shaitan. Like that's his category. Because a kafir is someone who says, I don't believe this. Iblis knows the truth. He's recognizing the truth. But he's refusing to submit. Right? He said, it's it's almost as though he's so full of rage. Rather than take ownership for his choice, he's instead going to show Allah that he's wrong. He's going to show Allah that he's wrong. And he's going to take down all of us. And so, so he makes a request, don't send me to hell now. Send me to hell on the day of judgment. Granted. And then second request, to show you you are wrong, Allah, I'm going to lead. I'm going to sit on a straight path. I'm going to ambush your true believers from in front of them, from behind them, from their left, from their right, from above them, from below them. Right. And then he's granted to try. Go ahead, try. You're not going to be able to get my true believers. So every request that everybody made in this story is granted. Adam and Eve ask for forgiveness, granted. Iblis, give me an extension, just like I'm an undergrad who doesn't want to do his paper right now, granted. And then on top of that, you know, I'm going to show you that you're wrong, granted to try. So what does Iblis never ask? And Shahir already mentioned it. Remorse. He never felt remorse. Well, he never asked for forgiveness. Forgiveness. And remorse. I mean, did he feel remorse? His arrogance wouldn't let him. He hid behind arrogance. And that's the strangest thing about arrogance is that you aren't even allowing yourself to look at what your real feelings. And so this story is not so much the fall of humanity. This story is the fall of Iblis. Think of what Iblis's status was when he was Azazil up until this moment. Then Adam gets picked as to be the Khalifa, peace be upon him. Then we have the instance of the prostration and the tree. And Iblis or Azazil becomes Iblis. And so what is the meaning of Iblis? Iblis is someone who has given up, who's fallen into despair. And so he separated himself. And so, so this is the tragedy of Iblis. We still speak of it as the fall of humanity, but the point is that the fall was predestined. It was dictated that Allah is making a Khalifa in the world. Because they were forgiven, right? We can argue potentially that the fact that they went to the tree started this whole chain of events that would then make them go to earth to start their job, Allah knows best. But the point is that they were going to the earth, you know, right from the start. And so this is the fall of the devil. And so there's a legend, I haven't come across it in text, where Moses, peace be upon him, says to Iblis, do you want Allah's forgiveness? I can get you Allah's forgiveness. And Iblis says, yeah, of course. He says, then you have to go to the grave of Adam and you have to prostrate. And Iblis says, I can't do that. And so, so this is that type of tragedy where he has decided to be, you know, our open enemy. And then even what is going to happen in hell, in hell, all these people are going to find Iblis in hell and then they're going to go after him. And he's going to stop and say, look, all of you knew 
I don't keep my promises. I made you these promises with no intention to keep them. This is not on me. You made your choices. Okay, and so Salman is asking, but all this was predestined to happen. Otherwise, what humans would be tested upon if it believes would prostrate or at least issue became added factor as well as humans have their own shit in them. Uh, uh, Brother Salman, if I can ask you to, to clarify, I'm not sure if I think I'm understanding, but I'm not sure if I'm understanding. So uh, can you hear me? Can, yeah, can you loud and clear. So, yeah, so I think that what I'm saying is um, uh, when uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decided that uh, humans are going to be the Khalifa on the face of the earth, so then uh, we are going to be tested. So whether the shaitan prostrated or not, this was already being predestined. So yes. was the whole incidence of Iblis refusing to prostrate was part of this process or was it became an added factor? Because we all have our own own uh, bad nafs in us, right? Mm -hmm. So. Was the test on our bad nerves already there and then the Iblis factor became an added factor on top of it? So I would say that uh, if we say that humans were predestined for this process of earth and Iblis was predestined to become Iblis um, well, by being exposed this way, but the core point I would guess, Allah knows best, is if you remove the story of the prostration, our story is still the same. Oh, yes. So, so Iblis became an added factor, basically, an added factor, for yeah. the test. For the test. Yes, exactly. So, thank you. Thanks. Absolutely, Inshallah. And so, yeah. And so, so, so related to your point is that in Ramadan, we know that all the devils are chained up; they're all locked up. And does crime end in Ramadan? No. Does sins end in Ramadan? No. You know. And and so. Uh, we're, we're often taught that your your baser appetite, your nafs al-amara, is worse than 70 shaitans. And, and yeah, shaitan's power is very, very small. I mean, his basic power is to distract you. It's, you know, when you feel tempted to do something, it's to sort of inflame your temptation. And, and so waswasa is not a very strong power, but of course, the more you listen to it, the more it does become stronger over you. Okay, any questions about this? So the point I'm asking for you to consider is that this is not so much the fall of humanity, this is the fall of Iblis. And so if we contrast this to the narrative in Christianity, for example, this is the fall of humanity, and then the redemption is in Jesus, right? That all of us, because of original sin, uh, are in sin and then we are redeemed by Jesus. But we're saying in Islam that this is our purpose to be in this world. We are not in this world as a punishment. We are in this world as, a, as an assignment for which we will be standing to account before Allah Ta'ala. Okay. No questions, thoughts about any of this? I just have a quick question. Um, Go for it, Nader. Yeah, so with uh, part A and part C, I kind of get the overall teaching. I feel like like part A is talking about what it means to be, or the fact that we've been tasked with being caretakers, and part C is um, about the, um, you know, that the fact that you're going to mess up as being a caretaker 
and there's going to be, you know, you're going to mess up, etc. So with part B, this information about um, that we kind of understand about shaitan, what do we do with that in terms of, um, you know, self-improvement, I guess. Yeah. So, so with the announcement, <clears throat> you know, two stories are being formed. One is a story of humanity. The other story is a story of, of Azazel. So humanity is given this responsibility. Azazel is, so to speak, not chosen for this responsibility. And so he wants vengeance to the point that he's dedicating the rest of existence to vengeance. And so he believes that he should have been the Khalifa and he's going to show Allah that Allah made a mistake. And so he's dedicating his whole existence to making sure we don't fulfill our um, our responsibility. What movie was that? Uh, Devil's Advocate with Keanu and uh, Al Pacino, uh, where Al Pacino plays the devil, and he says, "You got to admit, I won the 20th century." Of all the mess that's in the world, but so so it's sort of A launches B. So you got the A and C, but A is also launching B too. So, yeah. So for B, that's kind of talking about how Shaitan operates. Is there anything to be said about us and how we may act like in a similar fashion to Shaitan mm. and how if we act in that way, what is the proper way to act mm -hmm. if we experience certain insecurities or mm -hmm. if we have similar feelings to what Shaitan felt? Yeah, beautiful question. The yeah. proper way to act. Yeah. So, so the core in all this is to keep seeking forgiveness. Right. To the point there's even a narration attributed to the Prophet, peace be upon him, who we're already believing is sin-free. Uh, yet he's reported to have said, you know, I felt a veil over my heart. And then when he asked for forgiveness 70 times, and he felt the veil lift. Right. So that's not even sin. And, and so forgiveness... Tauba, what does Tauba literally mean? Tauba literally means that you were, you're refacing towards Allah, or in this context, you're towards Allah, that's Tauba. And, and so, so the point is that each of us, yes, has the capacity to behave exactly as Iblis, the accursed devil, has behaved. Probably not to, on such a grand scale where we're going to take down all of civilization, but, or are seeking to do that. But um, in our micro-relationships, yeah, think of how powerful jealousy is as a force you know, to the point that a person would rather not admit that they're jealous. You know, let's say I commit a crime against you and it's because I'm jealous of you. Uh, I would be more likely as a normal human being to admit the crime than to admit that I did it because I'm jealous. Right. And so we do have a lot of lessons in terms of, you know, the human aspects of, of Iblis's behavior. And then the other side of it is that he is a relentless enemy. And, and, and so this is the, uh, when I was working on a, a community case, this was uh, an advice a friend of mine, a teacher of mine said, he said, or Shaitan is relentless against all of us. And the closer you are to Allah, the harder he's going to fight you. At the same time, the closer you are to Allah, the more Allah is going to test you. And so that the shaitan is going to, the cursed devil is going to try to 
you know, take that opportunity. Yeah. That helps. Thank you. Chuck. Uh, Brother Saman, you, you, you raise your hand. Yes, uh, uh, thank you. So uh, my point is, there's, uh, you know that among most of the Muslims, uh, especially you know, uh, Indo-Pakistan, the notion is that because of what happened in the paradise, Adam and Eve were punished and they were expelled from the paradise and were sent to earth. This is a very common notion, yeah. no matter who you talk to. This is how we also believe that that was the punishment to Adam and Eve that yeah. we were thrown out of the heaven onto the earth. But what you are describing here is completely different notion that it is not, we were destined to go there. We were destined to be tested. Mm -hmm. We were shown there was a practice run made in the heaven. And then we were sent to the earth to go through this test, which we are going through because we were already being destined to meet Khalifa. Mm -hmm. But uh, but I hope you agree with me that masses believe in the other side of this story, uh, even among Muslims. Yeah. Meaning, uh, is, so to rephrase you know, the point you're making, there are many people who believe that if we didn't have the incident with the tree, that we'd all be in paradise right now. And that's yep. wrong. Yeah. And so, so to Isa's point, uh, did it come from Christianity, British colonization? Because I'm Desi, I tend to blame all the problems of the world on the British. And so, yeah, probably, you know, but yeah, Allah knows best. Oh, also, Isa's question can we assume the earth is already made? It seems as though it was. Uh, Brother Saman, did you have a follow up question or you just raised your hand again or just put your hand down? Yeah, that's all my mistake. Sorry about oh, sorry, it. Sorry. Yeah. So yeah, so so the point is that, I mean, it is it is possible that because of the incident of the tree, that that launched a series of events which then caused humanity to come to Earth. But still, we are going to be in Earth no matter what, tree or no tree. And but it was definitely not a punishment. It's sort of like if you let's say. Uh, you know, let's say I commit a crime against Mossab. Um, let's say, uh, you know, for whatever reason, I run over his hand and his hand is, is gotten injured. And then he forgives me. And so I'm forgiven, but his hand is still injured. Okay. Forgiving me is not going to fix his hand. I don't know where I got this strange example from, but so it could be that that's the relationship between the whole process of the tree and then being sent to earth. But again, they were destined to go to Earth. Uh, I think Christianity blames Eve from the fall from heaven, views Adam and Eve and descent as a punishment. So if we read the, gospel, the, the Genesis literally, then it's the serpent that convinces Eve to convince Adam to go to the tree. If we read it literally, and then the punishment is that the wives will be submissive to their husbands and then uh, women will have pains in pregnancy as a punishment for all this. If we read it metaphorically, then, then there's a whole bunch of other readings. But if we take Genesis literally, those first chapters in Genesis, and that's the story. And we have a number of, of uh, former Christians who are you know, more than welcome and invited to chime in. 
Any other questions, thoughts, reflections on this story? So, yeah, go for another. Um, I was just wondering, um, what do you have any insight as to why this story at this point in the Baqarah, like after we kind of have this breakdown of different types of people, um, why this story at this point in the narrative? To me, I mean, it makes sense that it's kind of like, and in a chronological sense, it kind of makes sense. Like it's the first, the first story. So it makes sense that it's, it is the first story that's given to us, but I don't know anything else that you can tell us about it. So if we, if you look at what comes next, uh, then we have the story of the children of Israel and the central theme of the story of the children of Israel is that this is a population that's been given every single thing in dunya, every luxury. But because of lack of gratitude, they squandered, they lost everything. And so there we can make a couple of parallels in terms of the stories here and their stories. So their story is sort of like a, a step closer to a regular earth version of, of all of us. And then the next section after that, uh, you know, which I commonly call section three of the surah, is Allah speaking to us. And it's as though the question is, look at everything I gave to that generation and look at how they responded. Now, how are you going to be responding to what I've given you? Make sense? Yeah, definitely. Thanks. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections on this story? I'll ask one more question. Go for it. Mind. Please. Um, so uh, just, uh, it's a, all, another vague question, but um, so when you're talking about being uh, Khalifa on earth and relating that back to justice and um, service, I guess I'll, I, I'm wondering, um, there's like the Sufi notion of um, working on yourself as a form of like social justice, I guess, like if you want to change things in the world, then work on yourself. Mm -hmm. um, to, but I don't know, I feel like with my experience in that has been that that kind of just removes you from all spheres that are not yourself or your immediate family. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, is there a more accurate way of kind of understanding that notion of working on yourself to change the world. Okay. Yeah. So <clears throat> the idea of working on yourself to change the world is definitely central because the more you change yourself, the more you're becoming closer to a law, the more you're seeing reality for what it really is, which means you're changing your perception. And so it's literally as though the world around you is changing the more you change yourself. And so that part is centrally important. It's also centrally important for the strength, developing the strength of your heart. Uh, and so that's literally one of the very first instructions that the prophet peace be upon him receives for so majority opinion is first he receives Iqra and then he receives the ayahs from Surah Al-Muddathir and Surah Muzammil. So like Surah 73 and 74, I think. And in Surah Muddathir, he's being told arise and warn. And make your Lord great. And then Muzammil, he's being told, you know, stand up, you know, the whole night, half the night, a little bit more, a little bit less, because you're going to be hit with 
some very, very heavy things. And the standing in the night is good for your soul. And so, so the point is, on the one hand, transforming yourself, transforming your heart is going to transform your perception of everything. In the same way that when you were 10 years old, you looked at the world very differently than how you look at it now. And then 15, 20 years from now, you're still going to look, look at the world differently, especially because you've lived more life and such. And you're probably going to have much more of a sense of mortality and such as, as, as you age. And so, so one aspect is your whole perception of reality is going to change. <clears throat> but the other aspect is you're also going to become stronger. This is, this is part of the point of strengthening yourself. Like I literally say, people who do community work uh, should be doing praying the hajjud. Right? Uh, they have to be, because uh, the hajjud is, uh, is super strong in terms of building you up. And in terms of reward, there's a really cool hadith narrated by Anas bin Malik. Anas bin Malik was like the prophet's assistant. His mother sent him as a kid to be the prophet's assistant. And I'm going to mess up the numbers where the prophet, peace be upon him, says something like, if you pray in my mosque, it's equal to something like 50,000 of your prayers. If you pray at the haram, meaning at the Kaaba, in front of the Kaaba, it's equal to something like 100,000 of your normal prayers. If you pray on the battlefield, it's equal to 1,000,000 a million of your normal prayers. But more valuable than all of these is the prayer done in the middle of the night in your home. So that's how huge the hajjud is. So we can evaluate this according to the, like the numbers of reward or the impact on my soul. So one way to read is, okay, how many points am I going to get on the day of judgment? Uh, but a deeper point, a deeper way to look at it is, okay, the impact on my soul for those prayers. And so, so that would be why to focus on yourself. And so, so, uh, so yeah, really to Isa's question, I thought Sufism was controlling the nafs. I think that's what, what is meant by working yourself. Yeah, that's exactly what we're saying. But uh, what seems to have happened is in the colonial era, the Sufis by and large have seemed to have repeat, uh, re, re, uh, removed themselves from a lot of social service, social justice work. And uh, the critical view is that they've been co-opted by colonial powers in the same way every other group of scholars and such has been co-opted. Uh, the sympathetic view is, is that they're saying, okay, the challenges of justice are so great now compared to the time of the prophet, peace be upon him, that you're better off um, you know, focusing only on yourself, only on yourself, only on yourself. Meaning at the time of the prophet, peace be upon him, think of what the difference was in power. 300 against 1,000 people. 300 ill-equipped people against 1,000 well-equipped people. And then the numbers are even a little bit bigger, you know, when we're talking about the Battle of Ahzab, but it's still, it's not that much of a difference. And compare that to now when we're talking about forces where the entire system is systemic, layers and layers of systemic injustice and exploitation with militaries the likes of uh, that the world has never seen before you know and so the argument is that the difference between the powerless and the powered is so huge it's unthinkably huge that uh, you're better off focusing only on yourself and, and purifying yourself that's the sympathetic reason or sympathetic explanation for why sufis seem to have left uh public uh public uh, life and I think there's some truth both to the critical side and to the sympathetic side, both both sides.
Any other questions and thoughts? I mean, even think about what's happening in the United States, right? Uh, so if we look at all the successes of the civil rights movement of the 1960s and compare family structure of African-Americans in the 1960s versus now, family structures today are nothing compared to what they were. Uh, high school graduation rates are much lower than what they were, right? And so should, I mean, but I'm a beneficiary of the civil rights movement. If the civil rights movement did not happen, I would not be, you know, a college professor today. That we, you know, I would not have those jobs. So they're saying, I'm saying there's some benefits there, but there's still all these other aspects that we still have a long way to go. And then, you know, look at look at the case of, of George Floyd. Like, you know, we speak, a lot of people are saying, okay, well, this isn't justice, this is accountability, or this is the beginning of an accountability and such. And so, so, so uh, powers control over the world is unprecedented in all the layers of, of power and such. It's almost like it's easier to wait for it to implode upon itself. But that does not mean that we're, we have the privilege of giving up. You know, we still have to work in our capacities and so on. Uh, Shallow, you raise your hand. So um, why are we saying that Sufis have left the world? Because the Sufis that I know are very much part of the world and you know the true Sufi challenge is to, um, you know, be in the world while you're in that state, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I think Sufis are still working in the world to better the world. So, mm -hmm. I guess I, that doesn't make sense to me. That sounds like a very traditional view of Sufis, like up on a mountaintop, mm -hmm. like not interacting in society. But that's not how it is nowadays. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. I would say, uh, in my experience, there are those Sufis who do do that. Uh, but the majority of Sufis, in my experience, and I'll totally acknowledge that it's anecdotal, you know, are more focused on separating from society and such. Meaning they're still working, but not as much in social justice and social service. But yeah, Helen knows best. And, and uh, so as I was saying, Senegal are still very active in social justice work. Yeah, I mean, there, there are those Sufis there, there are Sufis in other parts of the world. I think I made the point before that uh, many of the restaurants in Devon Avenue in Chicago are literally continuing the Sufi legacy where, you know, back in the subcontinent, you'd have different tariqas that would be giving, you know, feeding the needy with their signature meal. So the Sabri Chisti order would be giving Nihari to the people. And that's Sabri Nahari restaurant on Devon Avenue. Gharib Nawaz is also continuing this tradition and they give their, their food is super, super inexpensive and such. And, yeah. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections? Alrighty. So <clears throat> we will then put everything together inshallah tomorrow. And, uh, yes, sir. Well, this is one of uh, the, the previous, uh, your this, uh, not the class, but you take the day off and then you had a presentation somewhere in I think Adawa Center where you mentioned it's time for uh, uh, Islam to also discuss about the, I think, defense mechanism. I forgot the actual phrase you said. The Christian is also talking about, Jews talking about, it's time for Muslim also to talk about along that line. So oh, okay. That, yeah, that lecture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the basic point I was making is that after 9-11, as a community, we've gotten really afraid of talking about things like war. 
in fighting and such. And the point I was making there is that Christians talk freely about war and fighting Christianity and Jews talk very freely about it. So we should feel very comfortable in talking about it. And it doesn't mean we're all going to be going to war or declaring war on anyone. But, you know, in the same way we're, we feel comfortable in talking about matters of faith, we should be comfortable in talking about everything else. That was the basic point I was making. Make sense? Yeah, thank you. Hello. Sorry, this is circling back to um, something from two days ago. I missed yesterday, so I don't know if you went into more detail about it. But um, I think we kind of got sidetracked in a good way two days ago when we started talking about the environment and how Muslims should be more proactive on environmental issues. But the question that I had was, um, you know, where the verse where it says that Allah appointed humans as khalifas and the angels were questioning that and Allah knows best. Did we ever surmise why humans were chosen? Mm. So there's another ayah where the mountains and the earth were offered the responsibility. And everyone that was offered said no. And then it was offered to humans and humans are like, yeah, sure, I'll take it. And then it was stated that humans tend to be kind of foolish. So I'll read that in every way you can think of. Yeah, I don't have a better answer than that. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections? All righty. So tomorrow again, inshallah, we will try to now put everything together, uh, especially in Al-Baqarah, Ayahs 1 through 39. I wasn't expecting that we'd get this far, so it's good, alhamdulillah, we made it this far. I thought we'd only make it to about Ayah 20. And, and so then we're also going to reconnect it to Al-Fatiha and all these bigger themes that we've been talking about. And... Then we'll see if it turns out that Eid is not Wednesday. I kept thinking it was Wednesday this whole time, but I, I discovered that the calculator people uh, were saying it's Thursday. And so we can possibly have, if you want, another class on Wednesday evening. I mean, at this time slot. Uh, we'll see. Then that can just be open conversation about whatever it is you want to talk about, inshallah. But the goal is to complete everything, inshallah, tomorrow. Okay, so Wasim has voted for a yes. Judy has either either you're waving or you're voting. Voting, <laughs> inshallah. Right. So, uh, all right, inshallah. Um, so let's see. Let's see what transpires. You know, by tomorrow evening, in terms of Eid announcements and such. Uh, if there are no more questions, then we will stop right here. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah ta'ala reward you all, inshallah. Uh, we will have to do one more Jazakallah circle uh, uh, either tomorrow or if we have another class. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.